Greetings and welcome. My name is James White, and we have been undergoing a, a series of studies of the Bible, where it came from. We just finished a study on the subject of the canon, and we have been emphasizing the fact that God has given to us His Word with consistency. He has preserved it. He has protected it, and that we can trust what God has given to us within the pages of the Holy Bible. But, of course, we recognize there are many people who believe that the Bible contradicts itself. In fact, in many portions of the academic world today, it is simply a given that the Bible contradicts itself. They do not even allow for discussion in many schools today from anyone who would say, well, no, could we, could we examine some of these alleged contradictions? I have been in situations where schools where I was attending as a student uh, simply gave it as a given that the Bible contradicts itself and we need to work from there. And yet it has been my experience that when I ask for examples, many of those who are very quick to say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself, are very slow to provide really meaningful examples of an actual contradiction. Now, we know what a contradiction is. A technical contradiction is when we say that something is X and not X at the same time in the same way. And so, obviously, for the Bible to allegedly contradict itself, certain conditions must exist. It cannot just be, well, I think maybe there's a little different emphasis here that's found someplace else. When we're actually talking about contradiction and we start asking people, give us examples, many times we find that the examples they give don't work very well at all. One of them I had mentioned uh, just briefly earlier uh, had been presented to me by an atheist in a radio debate that we were doing. And he pointed out that in Leviticus 11.6, uh, the, the rabbit is forbidden as food to uh, the people of Israel. And it says, for, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And it was pointed out to me that rabbits do not chew the cud. Uh, their digestive system does not uh, have the appropriate uh, mechanisms within it. They're, the modern terminology we use is, a, is the term ruminant. A, 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 a being that uh, chews the cud. And uh, so this, uh, this atheist very rather proudly said, see, obviously whoever wrote uh, Leviticus did not have um, divine knowledge of uh, the rabbit and the rabbit biology. But as I uh, pointed out to him in response, I said, God is giving his law to Israel so that they can know what animals they should and should not uh, partake of. And he was not giving his law to a bunch of biology students in the 21st century. He was giving his law to people who had to have some mechanism whereby they could function in light of his law. And when you look at a rabbit, and I've looked at a few rabbits, they sure look like they're chewing the cud. And so this is a description. It is not a biological uh, type of, of uh, revelation or anything along these lines. And so... That kind of observation that clearly demonstrates that we need to allow the Bible to exist within its historical context is fairly easy for people to understand. But there are some other texts that can be difficult for people to follow. For example, some alleged contradictions are based upon whether the translation of the Bible we're using is really consistent with itself. Some of these may not even be contradictions in some foreign language translations into which my words might be translated, but they still, hopefully at least, will illustrate 
the process we need to go through to examine alleged contradictions of the Bible. One alleged contradiction that is very popular uh, for people to present is based upon the old King James translation of the Bible in the English language. Specifically, it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 7 in the King James, it's talking about the Apostle Paul, and it's talking about when he was converted and when, when God, in essence, knocked him to the ground and revealed himself to Paul on the way to Damascus. And when this light shone around Paul, it is specifically said, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. So notice in Acts 9, 7, in the first time where Paul's experience, his encounter with Christ is recorded, it says that the men who stood with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Then later on in Acts chapter 22, Paul tells his story again. And there it says, and they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him who spake to me. So just to make sure you understand the difference, one says, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And then Acts 22, 9 says, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. That sounds like a X, not X contradiction. Either they did hear the voice or they did not hear the voice. Well, how do we answer a alleged contradiction like this? Well, we do not want to try to just simply get around contradictions. We don't want to make excuses when there is a real contradiction, then we need to admit there's a real contradiction. But remember, we're dealing with a translation of the text at this point, and we would want to make sure that we're not missing something that is right there in the text in front of us. For example, in the New International Version of the Bible, here are these same two verses. Notice how they read. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And then the next verse, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Now, if you read those two texts in the NIV, you don't see any contradiction because it says that they heard a sound, but they did not understand a voice. Now, immediately, the critic is probably somewhat suspicious. Uh, what we're doing here is we're, we know there's a problem. We're trying to get around it. Is that really what's going on? Actually, the NIV at this point is a very good translation. When we dig into the actual original languages themselves, we discover that there are numerous differences between these two verses. And we discover that what the second phrase is actually explaining to us, the second verse is explaining to us, is that the men who were traveling with Paul could not understand the language of the person who was speaking to Paul. In fact, some indication is given to us in that when Paul relates this, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was his his Jewish name, his Aramaic name, and it's even spelled in the Aramaic form in the way that Paul gives it. And so what's actually being said, and there's, we can go into much more here, for example, the verb that is used when it takes its direct object in one form, it means one thing. When it takes it in another form, it means something else. This is all documented in the scholarly literature. When we look at what the original language was actually saying, what we discover is that there is no contradiction here at all. What's going on is that one is saying they heard a sound around them, 
but as he then explains in Acts 22.9, they could not understand the language that was being spoken to him. Evidently, those who were traveling with him uh, could not speak Aramaic. Maybe they were just Greek speaking. They were going up to Damascus. Uh, we have no way of knowing those things. But what is clear is this is not a X and not X type of example of an allegation of contradiction. Yet, I have probably had this presented to me at least two dozen times in witnessing encounters, especially by religious people, as an example of the Bible contradicting itself. And every time the religion from which these people came had a vested interest, had a real reason to undercut the authority of the Bible. Had they taken the time to translate the text? Had they taken the time to notice the major differences that exist in the original languages between them? No, they had not, but that's because they were looking for a reason not to believe what the Bible had to say. I remember a number of years ago uh, when I first encountered a man who, as an atheist, put out a regular publication where he attacked the Bible, uh, numerous pages of alleged contradictions in each of his publications. Uh, you would think that after a while, you'd have to come to the conclusion uh, that, uh, that only a person who's completely mentally deficient would ever believe the Bible, given how many alleged contradictions this man was producing. It was clearly his purpose just to mock the Bible, not to seriously interact with the text of it. And I remember seeing one of his alleged contradictions. It was in this form, and again, it was based upon the King James translation of the Bible. He said, look, the Bible can't even figure out whether you, you can murder or kill or not. And he went to Matthew chapter 19, verse 18, in the King James Version of the Bible, which says, Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. We recognize, of course, this is a section where Jesus is quoting from the Ten Commandments. But then he said, look at Romans 13, 9. Romans 13, 9 says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. Notice that there's a difference between these two. In Matthew 19, 18, it says, you shall do no murder. And in Romans 13, 19, it says, you shall not kill. And this atheist gentleman said, see, the Bible can't even make up its mind as to whether killing is murdering, murdering is killing. Obviously, there's a difference between the two, and the Bible cannot tell which one is which. Well, as I pointed out to him, I said, well, we're dealing with translations here. Have you bothered to take a look at the original? And of course he had not. In fact, he could not read it and, and did not even avail himself of the many resources that are available to anybody who really wants to, to examine uh, the original languages. Today with computers, we have programs that can provide you with information that only a hundred years ago would literally have taken the greatest scholars in the world and all of their undergraduate students months to come up with, our modern computers can provide us that kind of information in a matter of seconds today. And so he still was not availing himself of this kind of, of information. So I explained two things to him. First of all, I explained to him that the underlying Greek text, the Greek text that is being translated by the King James Version, says exactly the same thing both in Matthew 19.18 and Romans 13.9. In both places, the Greek is uphanusais, you shall not murder. Well, then why is there a difference 
in the King James translation? Well, that takes just a little bit of history. The King James translation was a tremendous translation of the Bible at the time it was made. Of course, it was made over 400 years ago now. And at least the, the work of beginning that translation began over 400 years from, uh, in, in the past. And when they did the translations, they split the New Testament up amongst different groups of translators. And so the Gospels were translated at one location, and the Paul's epistles translated someplace else, and then the general epistles of Revel in Revelation someplace else. And so there were different committees that worked upon these translations. Then their work was brought together, and there was an attempt made to make the translation consistent. But in those days, this was long before computers, it was much more difficult to compare things and to make sure that you had rendered the same words in the same way as it is today. Today, you submit these, these translations, you compare them by a computer, and where you have rendered the same Greek word in, by different English words will be very easily detectable. And that wasn't the case uh, back in uh, between 1604 and 1611 when the King James Version of the Bible was being translated. And so the translators simply rendered the one Greek word in different ways. And the final committee that should have caught that and rendered them the same way didn't catch it. And that's why it's in the King James Version of the Bible to this day. But clearly, allegations of contradiction should be based upon the original text. But in the vast majority of instances, those who raise such allegations raise them on the basis of a secondary text, upon a translation. And of course, frequently, that is where the problem lies. But some can be a little more complicated than that. Uh, for example, uh, let's compare Mark chapter 6, verse 8, and Luke chapter 9, verse 3. Many times when you compare what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they are looking at the, pretty much the same events. Not always. I mean, each author had the freedom to choose which stories he included and, and which ones he did not. But frequently they are looking at the same story, the same incident in the ministry of Jesus. And here in Mark chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 9, we have a similar situation. Now. They're looking at the same incident. Let me read them to you. In Mark chapter 6, he instructed them, this is the disciples, he's sending them out to preach the, the kingdom message. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt. Now, compare that with Luke. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. See the difference? Once again, Mark says that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. Luke says, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff. And so, the person says, here you have a clear contradiction. Either you are to take a staff or you're not to take a staff. Which one is it? Now, of course, hopefully, most fair-minded readers would immediately ask the question, are we certain this is the same incident? Are we certain that, that this isn't two different incidents in the life of Jesus, thing, things like that? Leaving that aside for the moment, thankfully, we have, in this instance, a parallel found also in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. And I think when we look at this, we're going to learn an important lesson, that sometimes we are willing to look at these ancient documents 
and we're willing to assume that with our modern minds, we have enough understanding of all of the context that we can make allegations of error and contradiction, as if these, these ancient writers, they, they were just weren't as intelligent as we are, they just weren't as consistent as we are. Actually, ancient men were just as bright and brilliant, if not more so, than many in mo the modern times. Just because we have technology and gadgets doesn't mean that we somehow are superior uh, to those, uh, those men of the past. And so notice what happens when we look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Jesus says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copy, copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Notice what he has here or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. So here, Matthew gives an expanded account, and in so doing, he provides the needed explanation as well. Jesus is instructing the disciples to go out into ministry with the barest of necessities. They're not to be bringing a big old uh, uh, bag along with them with all of their, their personal goods and things like that. They're to be focused upon what the ministry is. And notice, they are not looking to acquire anything extra for the trip. When he tells them not to take shoes, do we really think that he means that they were to go barefoot? Of course not, especially since he later on tells them to shake the dust out of their sandals in judgment upon a place that would not receive them. Rather, they are not to take an extra pair of shoes along. In the same way, if a disciple had a staff, he would not be prohibited from taking it along, but if he did not have one, he was not to acquire one just for this particular journey. So what we have in Luke and Mark is only part of what we have in Matthew. Luke records the prohibition given against acquiring another staff, while Mark communicates the implicit permission to take along a staff already in one's possession. There is no contradiction here. But if we didn't have Matthew, we would be tempted to make that kind of accusation. But what would the accusation actually be based upon? Would it be based upon our actually having sufficient knowledge of the context, sufficient knowledge of what was going on here? Or would our, con our, our alleged contradiction actually be based upon our own ignorance of the text? This should be a warning to us that when we're examining an ancient document, and I don't just mean the Bible, when we are examining any ancient document, and, and I try to be consistent on this point, even when I'm examining the documents of other religions, I think I should bend over backwards to be as fair as I possibly can, recognizing that in a situation like this, there might be mitigating circumstances. There might be an explanation. There might be a context that that, that I, I'm just not aware of and that the writers certainly were not overly concerned about because they knew what the context was. And, and we can't expect every writer to be constantly uh, going, well, you know, someone's going to be trying to pick apart my work and they're, they're going to be trying to accuse me about, uh, you know, make allegations of contradiction, so I need to make sure to spell everything out. When, when these men wrote these books, they could only make them so long. This was the ancient world. You had to handwrite everything. And especially if you want a book to be distributed, it had to be hand-copied. You could not expect 
that these books are to be encyclopedic in their, uh, in their recounting every possible little detail. And so when I see an example like this from the Scriptures, it reminds me I need to be careful even when I am criticizing the Scriptures of another religion to apply the same standards all along. And if you are not a Christian and you're watching this and you yourself uh, criticize the Bible, I would strongly encourage you, make sure that the standards that you use in your analysis of the Bible are consistent with the standards you use in defense of your own scriptures. I mean, truly, you do not want to be hypocritical and you do not want to use one standard in examining the New Testament or the Old Testament and a completely different standard in examining your own religious documents. Examine them all on the same basis and see which is consistent along those lines. One other illustration very quickly, just to give you a very common illustration that is used. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we have different genealogies that are offered of the Lord Jesus, the genealogy tracing his heritage back into the history of the people of Israel. And one traces uh, Jesus' uh, Jesus's genealogy all the way back to Adam because in Luke, uh, Luke is presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. Uh, Matthew's genealogy is different than Luke's for the, a very obvious reason. He breaks it up into three sections of sevens and he is, he is seeking to demonstrate to the Jewish people because Matthew has a different audience than Luke does that Jesus is the Messiah and he is of the royal lineage of the house of David. When you keep that in mind and recognize that in the ancient world, they did not use the same kind of recording methods that we do. In other words, if we were to, I've done, for example, some research into my own genealogy, my own history, because my, my, especially my father's side of the family comes from Scotland. And so I have sought to go back into the genealogy and, and find out my grandfather, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, all the way back, uh, as far back as I can go. And so obviously I'm, I am seeking to build a very specific genealogy. But Matthew isn't seeking to do that in regards to Jesus. He is seeking to make an argument, a demonstration as to who Jesus is. And in those days, you did not have to list every person, father, then the grandfather, then the great-grandfather. You could skip generations, especially if you were trying to make a point as to the, say, the royal nature of the person in that genealogy, especially when you knew that people already knew what that line was. You could list certain numbers to make that point. That's what Matthew's doing, is he's giving us that genealogy to demonstrate the royal lineage of Jesus. And then Luke is making the connection to Adam as the son of man, and he is also then bringing that up to Mary, whereas Matthew is doing this up to Joseph, the legal genealogy that would be his through Joseph rather than through Mary, who is the virgin mother of Jesus. Luke has a very special relationship with Mary. Clearly, it seems to me he had interviewed him. Uh, he has insights into what she was thinking and feeling that nobody else did. And in fact, he really emphasizes women in his gospel along those lines. And so once again, by digging into the background, we can discover that the allegations that people make against the scriptures, the allegations they make frequently are based upon an ignorance of the background and context. And if we will just take the time to do some digging, to do some research, we find that God's holy word can stand up 
to the examination of those who would seek to find out if it is truly consistent with itself. Thank you very much.